tell you, I get such an enjoyment out of teaching and preparing the lessons, um, but there are certain things that I absolutely detest doing, and I wanna, I'm going to step in that at some point. I want to thank, um, again, I, I don't thank enough, all the people that make this class work, and let me tell you who they are. First of all, it's all of you who show up. Um, when when y'all, if nobody shows up, it's real boring. Um, <laughs> it gets over a lot quicker, but it's real boring. Uh, no, I mean, it's a real inspiration to me when I'm preparing to know that there are going to be people here. Um, and a lot of you I know, and a lot of you I don't know except by face. And it's really nice for me to come in here and people smile and, and to have the folks here. Um, thank you for coming. I don't thank you all enough that, that you uh, faithfully attend or sporadically attend as your schedule allows. We'll take it either way. Um, uh, I also, the people who run this class, from the folks handing out the lessons, Mark Craver, Jeff Jansen, I see this morning just passing the stuff out, you know, Lewis, who's always here to do anything at all and in, in, in to help, and Howard, who just does so much, Mark Barhorst. I mean, there are innumerable people, and I should never name names because I'm leaving a lot out. Uh, Philip Sanoff, bless his heart. I never finished this lesson. I, I know you all probably think I've done these up six months in advance. Truth be told, uh, sometimes I get them done during the week, but lots of times this is something that I'll, I'll finish on Saturday morning or something. And Philip has just gotten into a habit where every Sunday morning he goes by the office on the way here and runs out 300 copies for us and, and uh, gets up extra early to do that and set up all this stuff. Um, I don't thank you all enough. But thank you from my heart to all of you um, who are here. I'm excited this morning about what we're talking about because we're going we're, we're talking about some good things, but we're also talking about some things that are kind of depressing. Mark's still holding up lessons if anybody needs one. It's, um, um, it's, a, it's a good one this week in the sense that it's got like pictures and stuff. Um, <laughs> we have uh, set a little package, a little box of three crayons if y'all need them. Becky had a chance to bring our four-year-old Sarah in here last week. She wasn't feeling well, and Rebecca, and, and Sarah told Rebecca when we got home that you have to be very quiet in Daddy's Sunday school class, and Rebecca said, why? Sarah said, because everybody's asleep. Um, but uh, anyway, um, um, it, we don't have the colors, but we do have pictures in it, and the pictures are in the PowerPoint, but... Um, one of the things that, that moves me as a person, that gets my engines going, um, I grew up all the time hearing things at church. And you think when you hear them at church, they ought to have credibility. And so I found myself as a young boy uh, preaching for a church in South Houston uh, 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 before I went to law school and uh, in League City. And I found myself preaching lessons, and, and the material that I relied on many times were things that I had heard at church. And I'll bet some of you do the same. You go back and you quote what you hear at church. Um, as I've grown up over the years, um, uh, I found out a lot of that stuff's not always very accurate. Okay, And I'm not throwing any rocks at DeMond here because I've never found DeMond to be off on anything. But some of the folks where I grew up, um, it was not always accurate. And so one of my desires in this class is to make sure we get as authentic and accurate material as possible. So what I often try and do and what we've tried to do this week is insert 
um, pictures, insert actual texts so that I don't tell you, here's something that I read in the Reader's Digest about uh, Israel, Israel's history. Instead, let's go find out what, the, what, what we know from actual evidence and then we'll take it, and, and we don't need to rely on the Reader's Digest. It's, if you're a, um, a researcher, it's the difference between a secondary source and a primary source. It's the difference between going back and actually finding the primary source, which is one thing that, that we try to do in this class as much as we can. So with that, we are going to finish up the southern kingdom, God willing, and uh, uh, the kingdom of Judah. Let's go through background and make sure everybody's in the flow of what we're talking about. We've been covering 1st and 2nd Kings, which is where we find detailed Israel's monarchy. Now that's not totally true because in the books of Samuel, 1st and 2nd Samuel, we had the early monarchy with King Saul, King David, and, but we really start kicking it into gear with Solomon and then the divided kingdom, as you'll recall. After Solomon, Israel splits and the northern part is called Israel. Um, it's ruled out of Samaria. Sometimes it's called Samaria in archaeological findings. It was known in outside countries as Samaria because that was the ruling capital. One of the more famous kings was a king named Omri that we read about in the Bible. But in archaeological materials, sometimes you'll call, see it called Omri land. Uh, but what it was is, for our purposes, northern kingdom of Israel. And then there was the southern half during this division. And that was called Judah. And uh, that's because basically it was uh, the tribe of Judah with a splotch in the middle that had the, the tribe, I think, of Simeon, if memory serves me correctly. Um, but uh, by and large, it was Judah. The northern kingdom quickly went off into idolatry. They left the Lord. The Lord brought judgment on them. And in 722, they were taken over and annihilated and destroyed and no longer existed uh, by the Assyrian Empire. The southern kingdom continued to go further and uh, that's where we picked up, or, or where we were last week, was talking about all of the southern kings. And we ended with Hezekiah, who was the 13th king of Judah. That's not technically correct, because Judah had one monarch who was a queen, Queen Athaliah. And I counted her as a king, because I didn't want to say he was the 12th king, but they had a queen. And she was a nut anyway. So I don't think she'd be offended. She was so power hungry if we called her a king. So we're calling her a king. And that makes him the 13th. <laughs> she wore the pants in the family. Uh, that makes uh, uh, him, the, uh, Hezekiah, the 13th king of Judah. Now, when Hezekiah started to reign, oh, you can find more information about him out in the books of Isaiah and Chronicles. Um, this is a little free advertisement. Uh, in fact, the book of Isaiah in chapters 36 through 39 contain a whole lot, almost word for word, of the exact same information that's covered in Kings. But we will deal with that when we reach Isaiah and when we reach Chronicles. Chronicles should be next week, so um, uh, we'll see it then. Um, let's do basics of Hezekiah, and then we'll talk about him some. Uh, first of all, he was a co-regent with his father from 729 to 715. Uh, anybody ever take their kid to work on take your kid to work day? Raise your hand. Okay, they had that back then. They didn't call it that. But what typically would happen is a king, you know, would take the son that was going to be designated the next ruler and would have that son reign with the king as a co-regent. It did several things. First of all, it taught the kid how to do his job. 
Second of all, it ensured a line of succession for the king. It, it was, you didn't have the problem that you had like with David. When David dies and the question becomes who's going to, or is about to die, who's going to succeed him? And the sons start fighting amongst themselves. This is kind of a way to ensure what the succession will be. So we see um, Hezekiah starts reigning with his father, King Ahaz, in 729 B.C. And, and at this time, Hezekiah is only 11 years old. He's a kid. He co-reigns with his dad for 14 years till the age of 25 when his dad Ahaz dies. Once his father dies, he, uh, Hezekiah becomes the sole king and continues to reign for about 29 years from 715 to 686 B.C. Um, it's an interesting thing. Hezekiah is one of the kings, as is his father Ahaz, I might add, where we have found archaeological evidence of them outside the Bible. Um, during this time, a lot of writings were done on papyrus. Are you familiar with papyrus? What, what word sounds like papyrus? Paper. That's right. Papyrus was made from reeds. It's a, a, a type of uh, reed. Uh, what's it? What am I, plant. Thank you. And uh, they, they would take the reed and, and flatten the reed out. And then do another set of reed that they would flatten out, turning it sideways so that they crossed each other. And you could write on this with a, 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 a Bic pen. Um, or, no, they, they, they had uh, writing quills and they could write on it. And then after they wrote on the papyrus, they would typically roll it up like so. And, and to save it, they would take a cord or a string and wrap it around it. And then to certify it, they would take some wet clay, a little dollop of wet clay, and they would put the dollop of wet clay on the wrap-around string and uh, um, uh, on, on the closure of the papyrus. And this is called, archaeologists call this a bulla, B-U-L-L-A. And, and what, after that glob of wet clay went there, they would come in with a seal, and, which is like a, a stamp, and they would stamp it, okay? Now, you do that to a bunch of papers, and then your town gets ransacked by the enemy. And do you know what the enemy did when they ransacked towns? They burned them. The papyrus burns. But do you know what the fire does to the clay? Hardens it. So archaeologists are able to find these clay seals, and in fact, uh, just in the last 10 years have found two that pertain to King Hezekiah. The top is one of these, these clay seals, and I've, I've got it redrawn in pencil in the bottom because I was afraid it would be very hard to see, and in fact it is. But if you look at it, um, let's, uh, let's see, let me give it a, a red ink here if I can. Um, um, there, okay. If you look at it, what you've got right here, these letters are real hard to see, but uh, you'll just have to help me uh, and agree with me that, that right here we're starting with an H. Um, and this is a, a, a Z sound. H, Z. This is a CH, a cough. Uh, so you've got H, Z, C, H sound. And then this sound right here is um, again going to be uh, kind of a, a vowel sound. It, it doesn't really make much of a sound, so we'll just call it um, an A. Uh, they don't have vowels, but they had vowel sounds. And then it ends with an H. Now, they wrote backwards, 
So we've got to turn that our way. CH, or it's also a K sound. Um, I left out the little yod, the, that A sound, it's got a Y with it. Now, do y'all care to guess what that says? Hezekiah. And then if we were really good scholars, we would continue to see that next, and it's got the word for son as a preface, uh, is, well, inherent within it. But next is this, Ahaz. Hezekiah, son of Ahaz. And then this is the word melech, M-L-C-H, which means king. And then the last, by the way, this is the, the, the picture that we see here is a scarab beetle. And he's probably pushing right here with his antenna the sun. Okay? And we could launch into this, but it's not biblical literacy. It'd become a graduate course at that point, and y'all would, you know, have to pay more tuition and everything. Um, the, uh, um, the, the last thing I want to show you, though, is right between the, the wings of the scarab beetle. Uh, see if you can get this. This has got that same Y sound, which um, we do as a J, like Yahweh is turned into Jehovah. So that would be a J for us. And then an H sound, again, just like we saw the H sound here, if I hadn't messed it up. Then that's a D sound, that's a Dalit, and another H. Care to guess what that word is? Judah! That's exactly right. So we have found two um, uh, of these bula that say, whoops, Hezekiah, whoa, there, uh, <laughs> Hezekiah, it's under there, son of Ahaz, king of Judah. Nice archaeological evidence in the last two years, uh, or ten years, of King Hezekiah and worthy of knowing. Now, if we look at the story of Hezekiah, uh, I want to talk about it for a while because these are turbulent times for Israel. Let me explain to you what I mean. The northern country has been just destroyed by the Assyrians in 722. Hezekiah is king of the southern country. The Assyrians had never bothered the southern country that much because the northern country was always a buffer. The southern country generally had to deal with Egypt. Coming up from the south, the northern country of Israel kept the Assyrians from further up north from bothering Judah. That's not happening anymore because the Assyrians have wiped out the northern part of Israel and all that's left is Judah. Judah is in the middle of a turbulent time. The solution by Ahaz, the father of King Hezekiah, was simple. I'll pay... Um, um, Alms, not alms, uh, I'll pay tribute, thank you, to the Assyrian army. And I'll become a, a vassal to the Assyrians. And, and in essence, it's uh, Assyrians, don't wipe me out, I'm on your side. I'll give you money and uh, I'll be real nice and peaceful. The problem with that approach is it involved a recognition of Assyrian theology and religion and godship. You were having to acknowledge the Assyrian deities and their placement, the deities' placement of the king of Assyria on the throne of the world. Okay? Now, Hezekiah 
is, for the first time in a long time, and unlike Papa Ahaz, a godly man. We read in Scripture that his... I have a Bible. Hold on. We read in Scripture... Let's put this 2 Kings passage up on the board and look at it if you've got it. 18, 5, and 6. 2 Kings 18, 5, and 6 is worth underlining in your Bible. Um, We read... Let's uh, see if I can't zoom in here. Yeah. Hezekiah trusted in... Who's this? Yahweh. Hezekiah trusted in Yahweh, the God of Israel. There was no one like Hezekiah among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to Yahweh and did not cease, sorry, and did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands Yahweh had given Moses, and Yahweh was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. Now, part of what he did here, as, as the text continues, is he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. See, we had in, in King Hezekiah, we had one who was following Yahweh with all of his heart. And part of that meant not bowing down to other deities. And it looked like political suicide. But it was something Hezekiah did anyway. And Hezekiah went so far as to to clear out all of the idolatrous worship, to clear out all of the priests, to get rid of all of the pagan influences that he could find in his country. And he quit paying his money to Assyria. Well, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, did not take this very well. This basically was rebellion. Do you know what the king of Assyria did when little, little places like Judah rebelled? He mounted up his whole army to squash them like a bug. So the king of Assyria brings down his army. Sennacherib was his name. He brings down his army and he starts destroying all of the little towns. Now please understand, Jerusalem is a big walled city. But, but Judah is loaded with little towns that would be, you know... Five families here and 15 families there and 10 families here and 100 families there. They don't hold up well to the 100,000 men coming down with all of the chariots. And those towns are taken very quickly. And those people are either removed or made servants or something of that nature. Hezekiah, meanwhile, holds up. Sennacherib goes over and takes a, a town over by the coast He's got his army close to Jerusalem, and he's coming next to Jerusalem. He's taken the countryside. Now he's going to take the heart of Judah and destroy the country. Do to Judah what he, uh, his people had done, his ancestors had done to Israel. Do you know um, what he did? He took some messengers, envoys, and he sent the envoys to Jerusalem, and he said, the envoys said, Hey, Hezekiah. Someone get the king's attention. Tell him to send his messengers out here. We're going to talk outside the gate. You don't want us inside? Fair enough. We'll just stay right outside the gate. Okay. Remember, no CNN. Okay? Don't you want to know if your city's about to be taken over? 
If you're just a common, ordinary citizen, wouldn't it be useful? Don't you imagine if envoys from the ruling king of the, the world were standing outside the gate negotiating or discussing terms with your king's envoys? Don't you figure there were people up there on the wall listening and inside the gate and the word was spreading around? Well, of course there were. And the Bible tells us that Sennacherib's men who came, instead of speaking in the national Aramaic language that they would have, were actually speaking in the everyday Hebrew the people of Israel heard. And the first thing they did is they started saying, well, Hezekiah's really done it now. Sennacherib's mad. And I'll bet you the people inside Jerusalem are mad too. They sure ought to be because they used to have a bunch of gods that they could worship that seemed to be taking good care of them. But now what Hezekiah's done is he's destroyed all of those gods. And boy, don't they look naked. We've been ripping through all of their towns throughout the countryside. And now we're coming to Jerusalem and we're going to destroy Jerusalem. I'll bet the people are upset with Hezekiah. The envoys from Hezekiah said, hey, guys, you know, we speak your language. Don't be talking Hebrew. The people hear what you're saying. Well, of course they heard what they were saying. The envoys were saying it in the language of the people for that reason. Now, the envoys cry out, hey, people of Israel, open up the gates. We'll spare you and just take your king. Actually, we'll wind up taking you anyway, but where we're going to take you is a wonderful land, and until we take you there, at least you'll be able to enjoy your life because we're not ready to deport you immediately. Well, word gets back to Hezekiah that this is going on outside the gates. Now, I want you to be king for a moment, okay? You got a lot of responsibilities being king. Your land is being invaded by the most massive army there is. You've got your people being turned, or at least efforts at turning your people against you. And not just turning them against you, but making it your policies that are causing them the problem. In the midst of all of these issues, enter Sennacherib, what does Hezekiah do? Let me ask you this way. Um, I, I meant to do, you're not supposed to see Run yet. Imagine Run's not on the screen. Hezekiah has a crisis, okay? He ran. He, <laughs> well, your imagination's lost, John. Um, what, what do you do? What do you do when your life is threatened, your way of life is threatened, your family is threatened? I mean, do you remember, um, how many of you watch the, the classic actors? You know, the, you can see the classic actors who... Any movie they do is going to be a great movie. You just know it because they were classic actors. You know who I'm talking about. Clint Eastwood, Jean-Claude Van Damme, those guys. Um, did you see the Clint Eastwood movie, Unforgiven? That's kind of his return. Do you remember when he's telling the guy, you don't want to have a shootout with me? He says, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill your children. I'm going to kill your animals. I'm going to burn your house down. I'm going to use you to decorate my saloon. You know, he just, that type of a, okay. When you are faced with someone who has that kind of control over you, what do you do? A lot of people run. Hold on to yours. A lot of people run. Do you know what Hezekiah did? He did not run. Watch this. 
Ah, it's a dire situation. Okay, come on. His reaction was there. It took me 10 minutes. His reaction, his reaction was not to run. Was it to give up? Okay, I surrender. I'm sorry. We'll start worshiping you again. We'll pay you the money. Wasn't to give up. Was it to get drunk? Well, man, this is a bad time. I think I'm going to check out of this world for a few hours and let someone else handle the problem while I'm slovenly drunk and laid out on the floor with no knowledge of what's going on. Do you know what Hezekiah, the man after God's heart, did? Yeah. First thing he did is he ran into the temple and fell down before Yahweh. And as fast as his legs will carry him, the other thing he did is he yelled out, Someone go find the prophet Isaiah. Tell him what's going on and get him interceding for me. Get him praying. He started the prayer chain. That's what he did. Get prayer from Isaiah. Isaiah hears about it. Isaiah prays. And God, and you got to remember, we're, we're looking in the Old Testament at a time where God's Holy Spirit does not indwell every believer. We have the Holy Spirit as God's people. That was a promise, and that happened on the day of Pentecost, where God's Spirit came out upon all of His children. But back in the Old Testament, it was what theologians will call selective indwelling. Only certain people had it. Isaiah gets the answer from the Lord for Hezekiah, and Isaiah goes to him, and Isaiah says, listen. Oh, I'm skipping ahead. Isaiah says, listen, God's heard it, and don't worry. A bad report's going to happen to um, Sennacherib, and he's headed back to Assyria, and once he gets there, he isn't leaving his capital of Nineveh till he's dead. So you're okay. Well, in fact, Sennacherib uh, had a problem and heard some bad news at home, but had some bad news in his camp, too. See, this right here, this is called the prism of Sennacherib. This is what I meant by, I want to give you some primary resources. Okay? This is on display at, at uh, the University of Chicago's museum. And if you could read, and it were big enough where you could read, um, this is all Assyrian writing about Sennacherib and his battles and what he did. And on here, you can read the following. As for Hezekiah the Jew who had not submitted to my yoke, 46 of his strong-walled cities and the cities of their surroundings, which were numberless, I besieged, I captured, I plundered his booty, I counted them. Him, Hezekiah, like a caged bird in Jerusalem before his royal city, I shut up. Okay, I love this. This is one of my favorite things, especially in America, because we have spin in politics like nobody's business. I, you think about it. I, 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 am, I am a supporter of our country. I love our country. I think God's blessings are on our country. But it's interesting to even watch our country when our country does something and it turns out not to be quite the way we thought it was going to be. Have you noticed how the spin doctors start putting spin on it and making it look like it was something else? If it's not one thing, then, then we can just kind of change it. People's memories are short, and besides, you know, history will keep the records the way we want them to. Look, look what Sennacherib did. 
He doesn't say, I was going to go conquer Hezekiah because Hezekiah pulled the tribute from me. However, I wasn't successful. And so I left and came on back home because he withstood my siege within Jerusalem and I couldn't take it over. That's what happened. But the spin, the political spin Sennacherib puts on it for posterity is really cool. It says, oh man, I waxed through all of the small towns. And when I got to Jerusalem, where that Hezekiah the Jew guy was, man, I really did him in. Look what I did. I kept him like a caged bird in his city. I wouldn't let him out. I put him in time out. <laughs> he couldn't conquer him. He didn't conquer him. Other historians account it in different ways. Herodotus was a Greek historian. Um, Herodotus says uh, 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 that Sennacherib's army was overrun with rats infested with the bubonic plague that killed gazillions of them. Um, while Sennacherib's waiting to take over Jerusalem, and he's out there with his army. Egyptian sources tell us the Assyrian camp was overrun with rats carrying the bubonic plague. <laughs> but we read about it in the Bible, and we understand the spiritual warfare, and we understand if, in fact, they were rats with the bubonic plague, who sent them? Where they came from? See, because we read that while... Sennacherib sent his envoys to shout at people, Hey, don't you know that all the people, Hezekiah, are going to be upset with you because you destroyed all the local gods that had been protecting all of these local towns and we've taken over all these local towns and now we're here and you've destroyed all the local gods in Jerusalem and we're going to take over you too. Hezekiah prays to Yahweh whom he calls the God of all heaven and earth. When we read, um, didn't we sing this morning, um, or is it just in my brain? Lord of heaven and earth. What's that song? God of, God of one. Isn't that line in there? It's a real biblical line. What we miss out on sometimes is remembering that the reason that statement had such significance for the Jews is because every other nation believed there were regional gods. And if you crossed the line from here to there, you were going into another god's territory. The gods had divided up the earth. And different ones reigned over different areas. Even the Greeks thought if you're in the sea, your god is Poseidon. And you better appease him. If you're hunting, then you can go after Apollo. If you're, you know, they, they had their divisions of the gods, okay? And the theology... And the truth that we have had revealed to us is there is Yahweh, no other God, and Yahweh's not just the God of Israel. He's not just the God of that 75-mile strip of land. He's the God of all heaven and all earth. And so Hezekiah prays to Yahweh as the God of all heaven and earth. And the angel of the Lord struck down the army. The messenger of God. Now, God uses his messengers donkeys. I'm sure he can use rats as well. So it may have been the bubonic plague with rats. There's something that kind of indicates it might have been, um, uh, but we don't know for sure. Sennacherib does go home. He gets killed by one of his boys, which I guess is a lesson to all of us. We should spend less time away at, at war and more time at home rearing our boys. 
Um, anyway, Hezekiah at this point becomes ill to the point of death himself. And in fact, what he has is he breaks out in boils. Now, those of you who were here when we went through Samuel know that boils, as we looked at the Center for Disease Control website, and as Dr. Mark Barhorsch confirmed to me after class, boils are one of the key symptoms of the bubonic plague. And there's a good indication, or not a good indication, I think it's a fair surmisement that at least Hezekiah thought, uh-oh, whatever's wiped out the Assyrian army is wiping me out too. Especially when Isaiah comes into Hezekiah and says, hey, king, get your house in order, you're about to die. And by the way, that's from Yahweh. Well, this is another crisis. Do you know how Hezekiah handles this one? He falls on his knees before the Lord in prayer and says, God, I don't want to die. I got too much stuff to do right now. And Isaiah has not cleared the palace before the word of the Lord comes back to him and says, oh, stop, you turn, go back. Tell Hezekiah, I've just heard his prayer and he's got 15 more years. And so Isaiah goes back in, says, God's heard your prayer. You've got 15 more years. Now get a fig poultice and apply it to the boil. You're going to be fine. Hezekiah is a little scared. He says, can I have a sign? Isaiah says, sure. What do you want? Hezekiah says, well, it's always normal for the sun to go forward. Would you get the sun to go backwards and we can look at the stairs of Ahaz and see the shadow go backwards? Isaiah says, sure, no problem. And it happens. Now, does that mean that God stopped the planet Earth and started turning it the opposite way? Um, I don't really think so. I mean, he could have done it that way. If he did, uh, uh, he'd have had to do more than just that or we'd have all fallen off. But, you know, he could do that. He made it. He could speak and everything could get readjusted. Time and everything else. Science also tells us that right during this time period, there was an eclipse that would have been 66% visible in that area. And of course, eclipse affect uh, uh, sunlight and can affect shadows as well. Um, there are lots of other ways God could do it. The point is not to explain away a miracle because it was a miracle. It was God's intervention. And if God had not intervened, it would not have happened. So the hand of God is involved in this and we see... Um, uh, the typical Hezekiah reaction, the sign of the sun, and Hezekiah heals. After Hezekiah heals, the Babylonians come and they want to know what kind of country he's running. And the fella shows, Hezekiah shows the Babylonian envoys all of his treasures. Isaiah says to him, why'd you do that? He said, well, they wanted to see what we got. Isaiah says, well, let me tell you what's going to happen. Babylon's going to come take away all the treasures. But it won't happen in your lifetime because you're honoring the Lord. And Hezekiah says, well, um, so be it. And, um, oh, one other thing Hezekiah does. This is also archaeological. We'll go through it real fast. Um, there's more material in the handout. But um, uh, Hezekiah is worried because... Uh, no, I'll do it this way. Hezekiah is worried. Let's... Um, if, I'm, I'm going to put up here a map. If you've got the study Bible that we gave out to folks, the NIV study Bible, it's in Mark chapter... Four, um, on page 1530. But this is um, a map of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. Okay? And at the time of Jesus, what we have here, this is the temple right here. This is the wall. That direction is north. That's south. Here's the east. Jesus will return from the east. 
he won't march through the whole city. He'll go straight to the temple is, is the, the thought behind that. And so this is, down here in the south, the earlier part, the, the city of David, and the city kind of grew out toward the temple. There is outside of Jerusalem, let me highlight this here, there is outside a spring, the Gihon, G-I-H-O-N spring. It's outside the walls, but it's a constantly running spring that's still running today. And what Hezekiah did is Hezekiah commissioned the work to dig a tunnel from that spring. The tunnel is uh, 5 foot 11 high in places, but dig a tunnel, and that's this zibbity line um, that goes under the wall and comes out into the pool of Siloam. You see that pool there? Okay. So uh, in, in anticipation of the siege by Sennacherib to get water for Jerusalem, uh, this tunnel was prepared. And uh, uh, it's interesting, we'll read about it in other places in the Bible. In fact, Jesus heals a blind man and puts mud in his eyes and says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Um, that's the pool at the end of this. But one of the neat things is uh, about 100 years ago, there was a kid who was kind of taking a bath in the, the, <laughs> the area, and he saw on the wall of the tunnel some writing. And uh, uh, that's the writing, it's real hard to see. That's it re-done uh, uh, in by pencil. And what the writing says is uh, the tunneling, this was how the tunneling was completed. As the laborers employed their picks, each crew toward the other, while there were still three um, cubits remaining, the voices of the men calling out to each other could be heard. Since it got louder on the right and left, uh, the day the opening was made, the stonecutters hacked toward each other's pick against pick, and the water flowed from the source to the pool 1,200 cubits, despite the fact that the height of the rock above the stonecutter's head was 100 cubits. And uh, it's just the pressure of the spring took the water there and it brought it in. This is an inscription that was done at the time. And, and uh, while I'm not an expert in carbon dating, uh, a lot of folks thought that's ah, just too consistent with the Bible, the idea that this was actually dug at that time of Hezekiah. It was probably dug a few hundred years later. It would have taken a lot of technology. So they went out there to carbon date it to disprove uh, the validity of the Bible story. Unfortunately for them, and uh, understandably for us, the carbon dating dated it to the time of Hezekiah very consistently. It's a, a no-brainer, so the scientists write up in the studies. Um, but that's the story on King Hezekiah. And with that, you're biblically literate when it comes to him. Next, his son Manasseh takes over. Now, let me do this quickly and let's get through it. Manasseh co-reigned with his dad, you know, take your daughter to work day, in this case son, from 697 to 686, and then becomes sole king and reigns until 642. He's evil. He's wicked. He's the worst king. It went from the very best Judah had to the very worst. He, um, he re-put Baal worship and Asherah worship in the, the country, going so far as to put the idols and the sources of worship inside Solomon's temple to Yahweh. I mean, that's like, I mean, it's, it's bad enough if you're going to kill someone, but killing them in the church, you know? There's just something really unholy about that unholiness, okay? Um, not only that, he takes a son and burns him alive as a sacrifice, he uh, uses sorcery and divination to get his wisdom instead of turning to men of God in prayer to Yahweh. And it is because of Manasseh that God said, I will destroy Judah. I will destroy Judah. 
Manasseh, his last two years get spent in Babylon. He gets taken over to Babylon. And this isn't in Kings, it's in Chronicles. But it's interesting, in, in Babylon, he turns his heart around to the Lord. I mean, that'd be like our equivalent of Adolf Hitler getting captured instead of committing suicide and turning his heart around. It's a major conversion, which also tells you, I don't care what you've done, you get your heart right before the Lord and he's waiting for that day, even if it's 40 years later. Um, he turns his heart around, he dies. His son Ammon did not share in the turnaround heart. His son Ammon stays evil, reigns for two years, then gets assassinated, and he is succeeded by his son Josiah, who's just an eight-year-old kid. The eight-year-old kid, now this is the time of the prophets Jeremiah and Zephaniah. We read their prophecies and we'll talk about them later. He's at eight years old. At age 26, he says, let's get this temple fixed. Let's get this cleaned up. You know, Solomon's temple deserves better than this. 500 years old, it's time for a rework. The temple priests start doing it and they start trying to collect the money to do it. And do you know what they find buried in some corner of the temple? The book of Moses, the book of the law. What a find. They take the book of the law. We don't know if it's the whole first five books, the Pentateuch, or if it was just Deuteronomy because it doesn't say. But the book of the law is found and, and, and the, the priests say to the messenger from the king, or the secretary, king sent his secretary, look what we found. The secretary says, holy smoke, I better take this to the king. The secretary takes it to Hezekiah and says, let me read you what we found. Reads the book, I mean to Josiah, sorry. Mine laps. It's just 50 years. Um, reads the, reads the, the, the story or the book of the law to Josiah. Do you know what Josiah does? He rips his clothes off. He says, man, we're not just off, we're way off. Now, I thought we were doing this right before the Lord, but we're really, really wrong. Let's get all of the people together and let's read it to all of the people. Let's undertake a reform. Let's, let's change the way we do business. And he wipes out all of the temple worship everywhere. Okay, now we got a problem here, folks. Here's the problem. I started this class out to tell you how important it is to me to give you original sources for things. I got something in my brain and I don't remember where I got it from. But I'm like 90% sure it's true. I just couldn't find it. So I'll try and find this for you later. But if you ask the question, as I have in my life, why don't Jews sacrifice today? Why don't Jews sacrifice today? The answer is, if my memory's right, I just couldn't find the reference for it. The answer is, Josiah, when he undertook reforms, said, in the future, there will be no sacrifices except at the temple. That's the way it ought to be. No more high places on the mountains. No more worship over there. I mean, you should let people start doing this everywhere. That's how you get into trouble. <laughs> we got temple worship, sacrifices only at the temple. So once the temple was destroyed... The Jewish religion still, out of Josiah's reforms, will not sacrifice until the temple is rebuilt. Okay. I, I think that's right. I just don't have the reference for you. Um, Josiah turns to Yahweh, and, and, and it's wonderful if you look at 2 Kings 23, verse 25. Um, and, and, and we're, we're going to close here in just a second. Um, uh, truly I'm done. But 2 Kings 23... 25. Let's get it this way. Ah, here we go. It 
It says, neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to Yahweh as he did. And look at this. Can you all read that? Read it with me. With all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses. Does that ring a bell with you? I mean, you probably you remember the song, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy might. You remember that song? It comes from Deuteronomy 6.5. You remember when we talked about the Shema? Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Deuteronomy 6.5. Hear, O Israel. Let's start with verse 4. The Lord Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. See, they found the book of the law. And so in the writing of Kings, we see the book of the law being quoted for the first time in a long time. And what a wonderful way to quote it. So, in short, Josiah reigns. He dies, fights the king of Egypt. Big mistake, got killed in battle. His son Jehoahaz reigns for three months. He's wicked. Jehoahaz is exported. Jehoiakim, his brother, actually his name was Eliakim, but they changed his name to Jehoiakim, put him on the throne. Uh, Jehoiachin then is on the throne for three months. Then we get a guy named Mathaniah, whose name is changed to Zedekiah. He's on the throne till 586 B.C. And on August 14th, 586 B.C., Jerusalem is destroyed and burned and the walls are torn down and the last people are taken into captivity by the Babylonian powers. Um, points for home. Next week we'll hit Chronicles. We'll review some of these when we hit the prophets who talk about them, the prophets who live through it. We'll go through all of this. Next week we're going to do Chronicles first and second in one smashing review. Okay? Um, points for home. Number one, God answers prayer. Hezekiah is a testimony to that. Don't run, don't hide, don't give up, don't get drunk. Pray to the Lord and watch Him work. Number two, God honors a seeking heart. Lots of these kings were seeking the Lord. They didn't even have the law of Moses. It had been lost. They weren't doing it all right. But God was blessing them because they were seeking the Lord. I go back to this. God doesn't say, you get your life right and then come to me. God says, you come to me and I'll show you how to get your life right. Okay? God wants faithfulness. And please understand, God is not mocked and God is not fooled. So find God's commands. Dig them out. It's not as hard for us to find as it was for the people of Josiah. We've got the laws Find God's commands and please let them change your life. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, we come before you and bow at your feet in humility. Uh, we are sinners, uh, all of us. Uh, from today to yesterday to last week, last month, last year, for all of our lives, Lord, we sin before you. Our desire, Father, is with a contrite heart to come before you and say, please, please, touch us, hold us, forgive us, 
mold us and make us into what your will wants and give us the wisdom to lead our lives. Give us the, the strength to lead our lives in a way um, that shows your calling, that's reflective of what you want. Speak to us, Lord. May we take you our burdens and watch you work in them gloriously. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.